Legal Definitions of Depraved Heart Void of Social Duty and Fatally Bent on Mischief Mays versus People, Illinois Supreme Court, 1883 Depraved Indifference to Human Life People versus Feingold, Court of Appeals of New York, 2006 The Dictate of a Wicked, Depraved, and Malignant Heart a disposition à faire un mal chose may be either express or implied in law. William Blackstone, Commentaries on the Laws of England, 1769. Herr God, Herr Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. Sylvia Plath, Lady Lazarus, 1965. Chapter One I gave the vintage teddy bear to Lucy when she was ten, and she named him Mr. Pickle. He sits on the pillow of a bed made military tight with institutional linens tucked into hospital corners. The chronically underwhelmed little bear stares blankly at me, his black thread mouth turned down into an inverted V, and I must have imagined he'd be happy, yes, grateful, if I rescued him. It's an irrational thing to think when we're talking about a stuffed animal, especially when the person having these thoughts is a lawyer, a scientist, a physician presumed to be coolly clinical and logical. I feel a confusion of surprised emotions at the unexpected sight of Mr. Pickle in the video that just landed on my phone. A fixed camera must have been pointed down at an angle, possibly from a pinhole in the ceiling. I can make out the smooth fabric bottoms of his paws, the soft swirls of his olive green mohair, the black pupils in his amber glass eyes, the yellow steif tag in his ear. I remember he was 12 inches tall, and therefore an easy companion for a speeding comet like Lucy, my only niece, my de facto only child. When I found the toy bear decades ago, he was toppled over on a scarred wooden bookcase filled with musty-smelling, obscure coffee table tomes on gardening and southern homes in a boutique area of Richmond, Virginia called Carytown. He was dressed in a dingy knitted white smock, and I stripped him. I repaired several tears with sutures worthy of a plastic surgeon and placed him in a sink of tepid water, shampooing him with antibacterial color-safe soap, then drying him with a blow dryer set on cool. I decided he was male and looked better without smocks or other silly costumes, and I teased Lucy that she was the proud owner of a bear bear. She said that figured. If you sit too still too long, my Aunt Kay will rip your clothes off and hose you down and gut you with a knife. Then she'll sew you up and leave you naked, she added gleefully. Inappropriate. Awful. Not funny, really. But after all, Lucy was ten at the time and her childish, rapid-fire voice is suddenly in my head as I step away from decomposing blood that is brownish-red with watery yellow edges on the white marble floor.
The stench seems to darken and dirty the air. And flies are like a legion of tiny, whiny demons sent by Beelzebub. Death is greedy and ugly. It assaults our senses. It sets off every alarm in our cells, threatening us with our very lives. Be careful, stay away, run for the hills. Your turn could be next. We're programmed to find dead bodies off-putting and repulsive, to avoid them literally like the plague. But embedded in this hardwired survival instinct is a rare exemption that is necessary to keep the tribe healthy and safe. A select few of us come into this world not bothered by gruesomeness. In fact, we're drawn to it, fascinated, intrigued, and it's a good thing. Someone has to warn and protect those left behind. Someone has to take care of painful unpleasantness, to figure out the why, how, and who, and properly dispose of rotting remains before they further offend and spread infection.